Mark 53, Jesus before the Sanhedrin. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. <clears throat> we heard him say, I will, destroy, <clears throat> I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went into the ent entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them, and again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, <clears throat> and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Yeah, thank you, honey. Uh, Please keep your Bibles open. It's perhaps not that familiar a passage, um, but there's some really important things tucked away in the details there. We're going to work our way through them, and it'll be good if you can follow as we do that. I want to start with a confession this week. Uh, my confession is I really look forward to the weekends. That's perhaps not that much of a confession. I'm sure that's common to most of us. Uh, but there's a particular reason I look forward to the weekends. Uh, I look forward to Saturday and Sunday because on those days in our house, we get to have Hagelslach sandwiches for breakfast. <laughs> Only on those days, uh, sorry, that's chocolate sprinkles for those of you who uh, didn't have the strange privilege of a Dutch upbringing. But that's, that's true, all week, all week uh, we look forward to it, me and the kids, Melinda doesn't share in that for some strange reason. Chocolate sprinkle sandwich, only on Saturdays and Sundays. It's the best, like if you haven't tried that, it is the best, you have to try that. Now, there are people in my family uh, who think 
that I should be embarrassed by that, that I look forward to that for breakfast. There are people who think that as a man in my mid-30s, I should be ashamed that I love eating a kid's breakfast every Saturday and Sunday. For the record, I also like fairy bread. <laughs> you can see, see a trend here, can't you? Now let's say, let's say for the purpose of argument, I was actually embarrassed by that. Uh, I, I found, uh, let's say I, I found it hard to own up to that fact. Uh, what sort of things might make me less embarrassed about eating hagels? Like what, what would make me less ashamed to admit that I enjoy it so much? Well, I, I've thought of a few, a few things. Um, maybe, maybe if someone famous, you know, someone who's very well respected, came out in public and said, I love it too. You know, you, you open Twitter tomorrow and there's George Clooney, you know, eating hakuslak for breakfast. That would make me feel a bit less embarrassed, wouldn't it? It's probably unlikely. But, you know, that might make me feel a bit better. Or perhaps, you know, maybe, maybe a study comes out this week, eating hagelslach lowers cholesterol. <laughs> I don't know really much about dietary science, but that could happen. Or improves heart health. <laughs> I don't know. But that would, at least then I'd be able to say, it's good for you. It might be weird, but it's good. Or maybe, maybe if I admitted to eating hagelslag for breakfast and lots of other people were like, we do too. <laughs> we all do it as well. This is great. You know, that would help me with my embarrassment, wouldn't it? That might make me feel less ashamed of admitting that. Now, why, why talk about this? Not just because I want to justify what I do already. Uh, we talk about this because our passage talks about it. Our passage addresses this idea of being embarrassed to stand up for things. And not just things, but Jesus. To stand and speak for Jesus. It addresses being ashamed to own up to him. And I think that that is something that at one time or another, every follower of Jesus will have to face. Now, perhaps you have already, perhaps you have recently, but at some time or another, we are going to have to face that, that feeling of being embarrassed about him or, or scared to talk of him or admit to following him. And this passage, this trial of Jesus and Peter's disownment, it shows us why we don't have to be embarrassed. It shows us why it is good to stand up for Jesus and how we can avoid being ashamed of him. We're going to see that as we work our way through this this morning. For the last months, we've, we've gradually been inching closer to the cross with Jesus. You know, last week we've, we've seen, uh, actually every week, we've seen again and again this, the, the cost of the cross becoming more and more clear to us. Uh, we've seen just how alone Jesus is as he gets to the cross, the abandonment of all his followers and friends. And now we find Jesus uh, alone at last, standing on trial before the religious leaders. Come with me to verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. Uh, do you remember, if you were here last week, what, what Peter claimed, you know, all these guys, the other disciples, all of them will fall away, but I won't. 
And, and, and so far it kind of seems true, doesn't it? All the other disciples have disappeared, but Peter is still following. <laughs> yeah, at a, at a distance and he's sneaking around, but he's there. We're going to pick up his story in a moment because now the focus is on Jesus. You know, we, we get this picture, the chief priest and, and all the religious leaders have come together. You know, everyone who stood against him is now gathered at the high priest's house to convict Jesus. Now hold this nighttime trial. It's not exactly an official trial. It's maybe like a pre-arraignment hearing. But they just want to get their story straight. They want to settle on the details so they can bring their case to the Romans and get permission from them to put Jesus to death. It's a solid idea. Except it doesn't work. Look at verse 55. Look how it unfolds. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, that's the, the ruling body, were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. It would almost be funny, wouldn't it, if it wasn't so sad. It, it, it's a ludicrous picture. You know, you've got the religious elite, these intelligent, well-trained, well-thinking uh, you know, men, uh, the, supposed to be the moral high ground, and they're, they're gathered together, scrabbling to, you know, find some mud that will stick to Jesus. And you can, you can hear their desperation. They've got all these false witnesses and false stories, and then they're trying to throw something to trap Jesus. And nothing sticks. Uh, the word witness and testimony, they're the same in, in Greek. And, and seven times it's used in those verses. Uh, again and again, searching for this testimony to convict Jesus so they can put him to death. Their, their desperation reeks through this passage. But nothing, nothing sticks. Nothing stands against Jesus. Even their most solid story, you know, this account that Jesus said, I'm going I'm to tear down the temple and then build it back up somehow. You know, he actually said that, not in Mark, he actually said that elsewhere. Even that, they can't agree on the details. They can't get that to stick to him. No story stands. But Jesus does. He stands there silent. It's not an accident that Mark records that, you know, throughout this account of Jesus' death. He, the, this Old Testament passage is coming out once after another after another. And, and here he's got Isaiah in mind. You know, 700 years before, Isaiah is writing about what God is going to do. And this is, this is what he said in Isaiah 53:7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. It's talking about God's servant who is going to come and lead his people out of sin and death. And this is him, isn't it? At his trial, standing silent. But notice, he's silent, but not silenced. Look at the second half of 
half of verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Finally, the direct question goes to Jesus and he gives the most direct answer. And it is his clearest and biggest claim so far, isn't it? I mean, we've, we've worked through Mark. We've seen what he's said and every time it's been, been veiled or been hidden or he said, stay quiet about who I am. But now Jesus opens his own mouth and it is plain what he says. I am that one that you have said I am. I am the Messiah. I am the son of the blessed one. And we, we, we get a picture of just how serious this claim is by the, how we see the reaction to it. You know, that they, are, they are furious at this. They, they are worked up by what Jesus has said. But, but why? Why does it make them so angry? Well, we see it in the passages that Jesus quotes here. See, these are not just words that he chooses at random. This is not just his summary of his life. He is quoting to us from the Old Testament. First of all, he quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1. Uh, it's a really common psalm that gets quoted a lot in the, in the New Testament. And it starts with God addressing this figure called Lord, that is a king. And it's, it's a figure who's yet to come. And he says to this Lord, to this king, he says, sit at my right hand. That is, share in my absolute authority share in my position of ruling and judging and overseeing the entirety of creation he says that is a guy who's coming a lord who will be a ruler and a judge like god and actually a bit later in that psalm god goes even further and says that judging and ruling king will also be a priest a great priest and a priest forever and in quoting that, Jesus is saying, that guy, that guy that that psalm is talking about, that's who I am. That's me. Now, as if that wasn't a huge enough claim, on top of that, he mashes in uh, some verses from Daniel chapter 7. Now, if you're not familiar with Daniel chapter 7, uh, Daniel, the, the, the prophet and the, the leader of God's people, is having this, this crazy vision, really graphic vision of all these different beasts which represent different human kingdoms, different ruling powers. And one after another after another comes. And they're all terrible and they're all oppressive and horrible. But then at the end of the line comes God, whom he sees as the Ancient of Days, he describes him. Uh, and God is coming in all his glory to settle with those human kingdoms. And how does he do it? Well, he does it through this figure that Daniel sees. And this is how he describes him. This son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Do you see what Jesus is saying? That, that's me. You want to know who I am? Read your Old Testament that's who I am. I am the promised greatest king. I am God's perfect judge who will execute his righteous authority. I am the ultimate and forever high priest. 
It has been given to me to rule, to execute justice and to receive all worship. That is who I am. Jesus says, there is no one like me. He drops the absolute bombshell into this trial. And it is the very best of news. Because what it tells us is that the one who we follow is not like anyone else. There is none like him. And that is good news, isn't it? After all, what is the pattern that we see in our world today? You know, every figure that rises that we might be tempted to follow or to look to, what's the pattern? It's disappointment, isn't it? Our sportsmen, our cricketers, they cheat. Even, you know, our quirky golden boy, the, the nicest, strangest guy to take the field, uh, breaks down as he admits his failing. Politicians, well, we almost don't have to talk about our politicians after what we've seen over the last weeks, haven't we? But, but even at their best, even at their best, there's those cringeworthy moments, isn't there? You know, I like the guy, but <laughs> I wish he hadn't said. And it's not as if our Christian leaders are any better, are they? You may have heard the stories about Ravi Zacharias lately. It is awful, isn't it? Standing for any human leader, taking up their cause, following them, it is precarious stuff. Because all of them will let us down. Any human leader will fall and fail and let you down. But Jesus is not like them. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is holy and Jesus is perfect. But in itself, that carries an implication, doesn't it? That means something. The religious leaders, we, we see, they got it. <laughs> they understood that what Jesus said wasn't just a declaration, it was a declaration with weight for them. And we see it in their reaction to him. Look at verse 63. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy, what do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him, they blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. See, what would be the right response here? Uh, a measured response? Uh, it would be, that's a huge claim, prove it. But they are beyond rational. Because they hear what Jesus' claim implies, don't they? Jesus' claim implies that if anyone was supposed to be on trial at this point, it was them, not him. If anyone could be in the position of judge right now, it wasn't them. If anyone should be in control, it's not the religious leaders. If he is the king and the judge and the ruler and the priest as he's declared that he is, then their role should be reversed. They should be bowing to him. He should be the one putting them on trial. It should be his authority proclaimed over them. See, hearing this declaration is, is, is one of those life moments. <laughs> it is, is one of those times when a decision has to be made. There is no fence sitting. There is no middle ground. You, don't, you, don't, you can't just not make this decision. 
to hear this requires a response. The claim is clear. He is the king, he is the judge, he is the great high priest. There are only two ways to respond to that. It is either utterly accept or utterly reject. See, the trial of Jesus has done exactly what it is designed to do. <laughs> it has revealed him. It hasn't done what it was intended to do, but it's done what it's designed to do. And the question it asks of us and everyone who reads this story is, will you accept him as the ultimate authority, the ultimate ruler, the ultimate judge over all of your life with everything that that brings? Or will you turn away and deny? Now, of course, both of those decisions have their implications. And we see that in Peter's story as it plays out. We pick it up again. Now, remember, Peter's, <laughs> Peter's still following. We'll, we'll call him following by a thread. You know, he's, he's there trying not to be there as much as possible. And it's very clear that he still just doesn't get who Jesus is. We see it in the way he speaks. Look at verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. And I'm just going to read the footnote because it, it belongs there. Um, it's footnoted in my Bible anyway. Uh, he went out into the entryway and the rooster crowed. The, the irony of this scene, it, it's so bitter, isn't it? You know, we have Jesus in, presumably, some, in a room of the high priest's house, making his stand. And at that very moment, Peter in the courtyard is abandoning his. And you remember Jesus' words? Before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. And now it's crowed once. It's, it's so ominous, isn't it? We see where this is going. Hear it, Peter, turn back, don't do it. Verse 69. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near to Peter said, surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. He began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. It's too late. And whilst Jesus is giving the clearest testimony of himself, Peter is too embarrassed, too ashamed even to speak his name. Now, of course, th I mean, there is a cost here. Let's, let's not miss that. It's no easy thing that's asked of Peter. Speak up for Jesus, and Peter may well find himself alongside Jesus. There is a risk here. There is a cost in standing for Jesus. 
But there is a cost in standing for things anyway, isn't there? Perhaps, perhaps you've felt this. Uh, perhaps you've experienced it. Uh, I remember experiencing it once uh, going to the footy. Um, once went to York Park, with some when it was York Park, <laughs> showing my age, uh, with some friends, uh, and we went to watch the Eagles, my team, uh, play the Hawks. Now, we got, we got some seats, uh, and by random chance, we ended up in uh, an entire uh, bank of seats that was given over to Hawks supporters, which is a little awkward. Uh, there, were no, there were no Eagles supporters, no yellow and blue for, for miles around. Uh, what do you do in that situation? Well, I tend to be a fairly quiet person at the best of times, but uncharacteristically for me, uh, I cheered on my team with everything I had. Uh, I, was, I, was, I, was very, I was that footy guy, that, you know, that guy that no one really likes, but anyway. Uh, you know, stuff the Hawks fans. I don't care about you guys sitting all around me. I'm going to cheer my team on because they need me right now. Uh, by halftime, my voice was almost completely gone. I never do that much yelling at any time in my life. Uh, but the Hawks fans around, they'd been really good. You know, there wasn't any niggle. There wasn't anything coming back. They were, they were very respectful. But all of a sudden, then the woman who was sitting in front of me, she, she turned around quite abruptly. And I thought, I thought she was going to give me a serve. Like, shut up, man. You know, you're really ruining this. But actually, she whispered to me, thanks for cheering, I'm too scared. <laughs> like, what are, you, what are you feeling in that situation? Uh, am I proud for what I've done? Am I outraged at this woman's cowardice? I mean, come on. Now look, okay, had it been a Collingwood game, <laughs> maybe a little different, I would have got that. I would have probably been too scared too. Unless, unless that is, I thought footy really mattered. You know, if I thought that footy was the most important thing, you know, a life-changing, even a life-giving thing, then I reckon, well, at least I hope, that I would shout for the Eagles, even in the middle of the Collingwood cheer squad, behind the goals as they lost a grand final. <laughs> I hope I would do that. Because that's the thing. Peter hasn't yet learned of Jesus what we have. He hasn't learned just how important Jesus is, just how much Jesus matters. Okay, Peter knows Jesus is special. We, we've seen him confess that very fact. Peter's seen things, you know, we can only dream about. He's heard Jesus, he's been with Jesus, but he still doesn't fully realise just how special Jesus is. And that's where we have the advantage. <laughs> because we know what's coming, we know the story. We know not only what Jesus said here, but we know what is coming too in just the next chapter. We know that the great judge bore the great judgment for us. We know that the king went not to a throne, but to a cross. We know that the priest sacrificed himself. All to save his people. Not from Roman rule, but from sin and death. We know that because we've read it, we've sung it, we've seen it, we've heard it, we've seen it. Jesus has showed us. And because of that, we, that is all who follow, all who believe in Jesus, are called not to follow Peter's example, but to do what he didn't and stand for Jesus and speak of him the life-changing, life-giving one. Now, the people Mark was writing to, they, they knew the cost. 
They lived in a time where speaking of Jesus had a real cost. Uh, it could have cost them their livelihoods. It could quite conceivably have cost them their lives. And yes, there will be a cost for us too. It won't be the same cost, most likely, but there will be a cost. And yet, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. We're not ashamed of the gospel because we know it. We know how good it is. We know how powerful it is, how wonderful it is. It's, it's not a message to make life harder. It's not a ma- message to make life less fun. It's a message to make life and to make it better. Do you remember what Jesus said back in Mark 8.38? It's been like four months since we covered that, but you can remember. This is what he said, Mark 8.38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Isn't that uncomfortable? Doesn't that sit uneasy? Because how many times have we been ashamed? I'm not just pointing the finger. How many times have I been ashamed? Too scared to speak. Too embarrassed to say what I could have said. You know, that conversation at work or with the next door neighbour. You know, we, we could have said something, but chose not to. Just in case it was awkward or weird. Or maybe even those times, you know, where we're actually directly asked and we, we cop out. We could have owned up to following Jesus. We we could have been honest about how much this really matters, how good he really is. I think if we're honest, each of us can, can think of dozens of times when we've been ashamed of Jesus, when we've actually just been like Peter, unwilling to stand, unwilling to speak. And we should feel the conviction of that. And yet even there, even for us, there is still good news. Remember Peter? (laughs) Uh, Peter breaking down, Peter weeping bitterly. Well, he doesn't stay that way forever. Because Jesus doesn't stay dead. He comes to life. And when he does, he meets Peter again. And when he meets Peter, he doesn't condemn him. He doesn't rub in his failure and say, look what you've missed out on, Peter. He forgives him. And he restores him. And he says, go on and keep speaking. And that grace, that forgiveness is ours too. We can confess even these shortcomings and he promises to cover them. And he calls us to stand for him. Now that doesn't mean being obnoxious for Jesus. But it does mean being unashamed. And even more, being joyful. Because we, we, we have to remember, this is a good thing we have. 
It is a great thing. We're not standing for some fallible or broken human leader who will inevitably let us down, make us look like idiots. We're standing for Jesus. We're standing for the one who is holy and righteous and glorious and powerful. We're standing for the judge and the priest and the king of all. There's none like him and he's ours and we get to stand and declare his name. We're not speaking for you know, some sort of pyramid scheme or some mid-level marketing. It's not as if we're Enyo uh, evangelists or Tupperware or whatever's going around now, Thermomix. You know, we're standing for something that matters. We're standing for the message of life, for God's love lavished on people, for forgiveness of sins, restoration and renewal and life eternal. All of life's great questions answered in Jesus. And we're not doing it alone. You, you and I, we're together in this. Every step of it. So let's speak of it. Let's encourage each other. This is hard work. Like, like, I get that. I feel that. It is hard work. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about those struggles. Let's talk about those triumphs. Let's get alongside each other and pray for us in this work. There, I mean, there's a challenge for our connects this week, isn't there? Now, what a, what a place where we can share. Look... This is where I've been trying to talk about Jesus. This is where I've been wanting to talk about Jesus, but it's, I'm finding it so hard. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Let's pray about that. Let's encourage each other in that. How precious. Because that's the question here. Will you testify to Jesus as he himself has testified to be? There is nothing here to be embarrassed by. He's not shameful. What he's done is not small. And you are not alone. He is the best that ever will be. His news is the best news that ever will be. And you and I, we do this together. Remember how great Jesus is. Don't be scared. Don't be ashamed. But be glad and speak about him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is, it is so wonderful, so precious to hear Jesus' words, to hear him testify to the truth of who he is, to proclaim that he is your son, your great king, your greater priest, your righteous judge. Father, he is glorious and powerful and holy and he has come to make all things right we thank you for that good and beautiful news that's given even to us and we ask for your forgiveness because there are so many times when we are too scared too ashamed too embarrassed to speak of him there are so many times where we've stayed silent and in our silence denied him. Please forgive us. And we ask that you would please give us courage to speak. Help us to see Jesus clearly in, in all his beauty and power. And therefore be glad to openly stand and openly speak of him. Father, we pray especially that this week in Easter we might be able to talk about why he is so special. We might be able to invite others to come and hear about how good he is, 
and how precious what he's come to do is. Help us in this, we pray. In his name. Amen.